How do you feel about what's happening in Iran right now? So uh, as far as Iran is concerned, uh, first of all, I want to be really upfront with you and your guests and to say I, I haven't been to Iran, and it's not so easy for Americans to travel in Iran for reasons that are probably obvious. Um, it's just more uh, more than anything, just reciprocity with the U.S. The U.S. doesn't make it terribly easy for Iranians to come to the U.S. Um, and also our, our standing with that country. We haven't had diplomatic relations for pretty much my whole lifetime. So like from, what, 1979 forward, there's been no U.S. embassy there and no Iranian embassy in the U.S. So that makes travel difficult. You can do it, but you need to be, as an American at least, you need to be chaperoned uh, by a tour guide or have a host family or some person in Iran that's willing to vouch for you. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. I'm your host, Sean Dustin. Today's August 24th, 2019. Uh, this is episode 13. I recorded this episode back on July 7th or 8th. So it's about a month. No, a little bit. No, about six weeks. Uh, six weeks to th- to seven weeks since I, I recorded this, uh, this episode is going to be with Eric Maddox. He is the host of the Latitude Adjustment podcast. And you've, if you've been listening to my show, you'll, you'll have heard me in previous episodes plug this podcast or, or in my Facebook group. I've, uh, made some posts about, having people check out this podcast. It's one of my favorite ones. He talks about a lot of good stuff, a lot of things that are happening around the world that aren't being, that aren't being talked about or covered in mainstream media because, you know, the truth doesn't really sell papers or sell advertising for media companies. It's usually narratives that, are being pushed for our government or other agendas. So what he's out there doing and and bringing to light is very important and worth listening to. This was the episode that I came in very unprepared to interview somebody who was very prepared when they do interviews so it was it it was an adjustment. It was a learning experience. Um, it was an embarrassing experience, but that's all right. You know when you you know that's look. You either win or you learn. There's there's no losing. You don't you don't win or lose. You know because losses. What do those do? Those force you to think about what has transpired and how it felt. Embarrassment doesn't feel good. Nobody likes to be embarrassed especially when it's somebody that you respect, you know, then it, then it's even more embarrassing. But Eric was a good sport. Uh, he gave me some great tips 
and I really enjoyed talking to him. I can't wait to uh, have another conversation with him and just let him pick the topic he wants to talk about and just let him go because he's, he's very knowledgeable and he's a, a very good explainer. You know, he really likes to, to, you know, give context to whatever it is he's explaining. So I, I understand him quite well and I, I like listening to him and I like, like listening to his information. So I just got back from Portland, Oregon, uh, on the 22nd. I was there from the 18th to the 22nd for a uh, Western States conference for my local union that I belong to. I'm on the executive board and I'm a trustee and I was delegated by the body to go attend this conference so we can basically, you know, have a report ready, you know, to the members and give our perspectives of what we learned and what was talked about there. It was a good time. The, the local 36 who was hosting it did a, did a awesome job. Uh, the food was really good. Uh, yeah, it was about a 10 pound trip. That's how I like to measure my, my trips and how much weight I gained because I ate all kinds of stuff, desserts, I think I hit Voodoo Donuts on the last day. Those that was those are pretty good. That place uh has quite a selection of donuts. I've never seen donuts with uh Captain Crunch on the top or or uh Lucky Charms or just the Lucky Charm marshmallows. That was pretty cool. With that being said, let's get to the show. How do you feel about what's happening in Iran right now? So uh, as far as Iran is concerned, uh, first of all, I want to be really upfront with you and your guests and to say I, I haven't been to Iran. And it's not so easy for Americans to travel in Iran for reasons that are probably obvious. Um, it's just more, uh, more than anything, just reciprocity with the U.S. The U.S. doesn't make it terribly easy for Iranians to come to the U.S. Um, and also our, our standing with that country. We haven't had diplomatic relations for pretty much my whole lifetime. So like from, what, 1979 forward, there's been no U.S. embassy there and no Iranian embassy in the U.S. So that makes travel difficult. You can do it, but you need to be, as an American at least, you need to be chaperoned uh, by a tour guide or have a host family or some person in Iran that's willing to vouch for you. So uh, just grabbing a backpack and kind of taking off to see the country on your own is, isn't really so much an option. And then there's some other things that make it difficult to travel there. So I just want to contextualize like what it would be like if somebody wanted to go see Iran for themselves, because that's the first thing that I advocate for, is if you really want to understand an issue or a culture, a community, a country, or the world, or even understand your own country better, you need to get out into the world and see these places, right? So I want to just uh, provide a little bit of a uh, back story for everyone so they can understand that it's difficult for Americans to even see Iran, which kind of feeds into um, uh, the bias that ends up getting formed in media. There's nobody to counteract. There's, there's very few people who can counteract that with direct experience, and that makes it easier for the public to be manipulated. So that said, what's happening in Iran right now, I'm assuming that you mean the escalation in rhetoric and uh, so-called like saber rattling between like the Trump administration and uh, the Iranian government over 
this uh, supposed attack in some oil tankers um, in, I think it was the Gulf of Oman a few weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, where to start, man? So, really, I mean, <laughs> it's, a difficult, it's difficult to know where to start with that. Like, you've got... Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't... Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't like a, uh, I mean, this wasn't just a, 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 a random thing that, that, you know, just popped up. I mean, we, obviously, Iran's not playing ball with, you know, maybe U.S. or, or whoever it is, or NATO, or I, I don't know, just, I just feel like the United States just gets out there and gets into all kind of stuff to where the, the rest of, of the world just doesn't like us. You know what I mean? And our policies and, and, you know, how, how all that stuff just plays into, I don't know, man, I'm pretty susceptible to conspiracies and I listen to a lot of conspiracy podcasts and, you know, that's kind of where I get some of my information from. Um, and I listen to other, uh, investigative journalists or, or people out there that are doing stuff like Ryan Dawson. And that that's just sort of like that, that's where my influences are. Mm-hmm. So that's, well, I mean, I try to ground my views as much as possible in uh, incredible uh, analysis and in my own direct experience. And, and most of the stuff that I can verify is bad enough, you know, <laughs> like enough of the stuff that I've seen and the stuff that I've, that I've read from reputable news sources is bad enough to where, I mean, there is conspiratorial conspiracy stuff that's going on i don't know that i really go in for some of the more like kind of far-flung theories because it's like man we've got our hands full already just dealing with the stuff that's like that's that's right there that's part of the public record but it's getting ignored by the mainstream press for whatever reason you know because the mainstream press is more about being a business than it is about informing the public so when it comes to Iran, the, the place to start i guess for americans is is not just with the most recent incidents right like it's we got to work our way backwards a little bit and understand this in its historical and political context so like why would iran be responding the way that they are to uh what they're saying are american threats um and why is and, and why does the u.s seem to have this posture aggressive posture towards iran um is that's not new to the trump administration the obama administration did uh negotiate the um, the Iran nuclear agreement. Uh, but that was, I don't know, at least a decade in the making, going back to the Bush administration. So that's been ongoing for a while, kind of these fits and starts of attempts at diplomacy with Iran to try and at least repair some relations with them. But really, the place that I would direct people to go back to if they really want to understand how American-Iranian relations went off the rails or where a lot of the grievances are on the Iranian side, you got to go back to 1953 when the U.S. and MI6 uh, deposed the only democratically elected leader that country ever had, Mohammad Mossadegh. And he was not like an extremist by any sense. He was a nationalist, and he tried to nationalize his country's oil industry so that the people could benefit from their own country's resources because they had been left stuck with colonial era contracts that were basically raping that country's natural resources and filling the coffers of all well, the British, you know, the former colonial minders. And 
when he came to power and tried to nationalize it, well, British Petroleum and the British government didn't like that very much. And very quickly, um, this is this is a verifiable conspiracy theory. You know, this is this is part of the public record. Um, Kermit Roosevelt, like related to Teddy Roosevelt, I think he's his grandson or grandnephew, um, was the was the head of the CIA led operation and and uh, in participation with MI6. And they deposed him in a coup. I mean, there's a there's a whole backstory for how they how that operation unfolded and why it was successful. But basically, a bunch of rumors were spread about him in the press and his political leanings. And people were, by various means, brought out to the streets to have these massive protests. And other people brought out to protest those protesters until there was pandemonium in the streets. The guy ended up being deposed. And then the uh, the U.S. and the British reinstated the Shah, which is essentially the king of Iran, against the will of the people. And he ruled in that country from the time that uh, Mossadegh was deposed until 1979, the revolution. And during that time, he modernized that country in a lot of ways. He secularized that country in a lot of ways. Like you saw women dressing in more Western style. I believe people could drink alcohol then. Um, and he also robbed his country blind and lived a life of like like a French aristocrat, like like, I think there might even be stories about the guy, like, literally bathing in champagne. Like, it was insane. Um, and uh, through these lavish parties and bought a buttload of American weapons, which kept the defense contractors pretty happy in the U.S. And if anybody knows anything about the military industrial congressional complex, then they know that uh, that has political implications. You're not just making businesses wealthy. Like, that means money for campaigns and uh, re and reelection for politicians who play ball with the defense industry. So he was kept in power for decades. He ha he ran a secret police service known as the Savak that terrorized his own people in ways that I won't really even go into because it's just horrifically gruesome. Um, but all political opposition was was crushed um, in the most grisly ways you can imagine. And <clears throat> finally. Uh, after a few decades of this in the 70s, and by the way, man, if like people read the news reports like from the New York Times around this time, it sounds exactly like the, the arms deals that we had going with the Saudis and with Mohammed bin Salman, like the crown prince in Saudi Arabia right now. So a lot of parallels. But anyway, like go get to like uh, 1978-79 and there's these massive street protests in Iran. Uh, it starts out, I believe, as a student-led revolution but ultimately gets co-opted by the clerics, by the religious authorities. Um, that's when um, Ayatollah Khomeini comes back from exile and what could have been a more secular revolution um, and throwing off of a Western-backed dictator ended up becoming the Islamic Republic of Iran. And then there were massive internal purges and it became a theocracy. And the and around this time is also when the U.S. embassy uh, was taken over and the hostage crisis that went on for, I think, over 400 days. And ultimately, maybe more than any other single incident led to Carter not getting reelected. And the hostages were freed like within hours of Ronald Reagan becoming president, kind of as an F.U. to the, the Carter administration. So the Iranians also at this time uh, were invaded by Iraq. I believe that was in 1980. And Saddam Hussein invaded and they had, I think it was an eight year long, extremely bloody war in which, uh, I mean, I'm trying to remember the numbers, but I think it's probably around a million Iranians and about half a million Iraqis died 
in a brutal, like almost decade long border war uh, where like poison gas was used against troops. Like it was just this horrible, like World War One era carnage. And the U.S. and Western countries more or less backed the uh, the Saddam Hussein in Iraq and even the Soviets did. And pretty much nobody came to the assistance of uh, of Iran, except for, I believe, Syria, which I mean, didn't necessarily have much to offer at that time. But uh, so they lost tons and tons of people at a time when they were at their most vulnerable right after they were well, when they were still very much in like the aftermath of a revolution to throw off a Western backed dictator. Another Western backed dictator in the region invades their country and every available young man is sent to basically die in these like uh, horrible uh, battles um, where they're being where be, being killed in gas attacks. Uh, and little kids are sent into minefields on bicycles. So like, because they don't have mine disposal technology. Um, so they're just sent with like plastic keys to heaven on their necks um, and on bicycles out into minefields to detonate them. Um, that's that's how the Iranian regime was treating its own people during this time. So they've never forgotten how they were treated by the West. That's why I'm mentioning all this backstory. Like the Iranian regime, say what you will about them. I'm no fan of the, the people who are in charge of Iran right now or the fact that they are, in fact, oppressing their own people. They are terrible. It doesn't mean that the U.S. has the right to treat the to impose sanctions that end up hurting the people, which they always do. And they hurt the, the ruling class last. The Iranian people have never and, and the government have never really forgotten how they were treated when the Shah was imposed on them. Um, and they haven't forgotten how they were treated when they were invaded by Saddam Hussein. And so when the U.S. talks about them posing a threat to the West because they are trying to build up, well, possibly nuclear weapons capability, um, that's debatable. Uh, or even just uh, having expansionist tendencies uh, in, in the region, right? Uh, well, keep in mind that this is a country that's surrounded by Western and principally U.S. military bases, like on all sides, and has been subject to this kind of treatment going back decades. Like back before the coup, they were also colonized, right? So, I mean, there really haven't been too many points in I don't know, the last century plus when Iran hasn't faced some sort of perceived existential threat from the West. Um, you can kind of understand why they'd be a little bit paranoid and why they would be doing what they can to make sure that they have their interests protected with proxy elements involved in, uh, in, in other wars and in other countries in the region. So that's, I mean, to try and understand the Iranian mindset as a non-Iranian who doesn't speak Farsi and has never been there, I'm going to do my best. Um, that's not really my area of uh, focus, but that's what I understand about Iran. And then part of what informs a continuing American belligerence towards Iran, that's important to understand, too. Like, why do we never seem to leave that place alone? You know, um, is it that we want their oil? I don't know. Like, uh, I'm not sure that that's the case. You have to look at how U.S. foreign policy is determined. And this is where people will in your audience might or people listening to this might think that I'm getting conspiratorial, but if you pay attention to any of the the way lobbying works in Washington and how U.S. foreign policy is formed, especially in the Middle East, this stuff is pretty obvious. Like it's 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 the stated platform of some of these lobbying organizations. So one of the principal determinants of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East is Israel. Its relationship and principally like uh, the role of the Israel lobby in the U.S., which is reinforced with 
politicized religious elements in the American Christian community, uh, principally uh, evangelical Christian Zionists. Where to go from there, man? Like, uh, because as soon as you start going down that road, very quickly people start to get their defenses up and start lobbying accusations of anti-Semitism at you. I have nothing negative to say about Jewish people or about the religion, and I, and uh, um, people have the right to practice whatever religion they want, and I don't believe in some uh, conspiracy theory involving Jewish people. I do believe that the country of Israel has uh, its own interests, and it has a very effective lobby um, that it's using to promote those interests, which the U.S. does, I'm sure, in other countries, too. And Israel's not the only country that's doing that in the U.S., it's just that Israel has a very outsized influence, given its size and, to me, its geostrategic relevance in the region. Um, and it has for quite some time, and it's become increasingly belligerent because it's led by a right-wing government, which is not really in the interest of Israelis either, to have a belligerent leadership. So... Why does Israel have this this belligerent posture towards Iran? Well, I think, one, um, Israel is genuinely scared of Iran because Iran has stated pretty plainly that there are no friends of Israel. And keep in mind that these used to be allied countries under the Shah, under the imposed dictatorship um, backed by the U.S. and other Western countries. Israel and Iran were close allies. It's when it became an Islamic Republic that that changed. And... The, the Iranian regime is, supports the Palestinian cause, which obviously the current government uh, and arguably any government in Israel doesn't support their liberation struggle. Um, they're the principal barrier to it. So, so there's that. There's the Palestinian question. But uh, Israel's paranoid that, that Iran wants to pick a fight with it, and it doesn't want Iran to have the capacity to be able to wage a war with it. So it's using its influence in the U.S., to ensure that that won't happen. And so then the, the question becomes, is that actually a likely outcome? Does Iran really want war with Israel? And you can find people in Iran that say some pretty nasty, hateful, and most likely racist things about Israel and about Israelis and about Jews. Um, but is that really what the government there wants? Um, Israel's a nuclear power, you know, like they, they have the capacity with the between 60 to 200 nuclear warheads that they have to turn Iran into a parking lot without much help from the U.S. So it would be suicide for Iran to, to want to attack Israel. So that's, I mean, and then there's the question of, is Iran really trying to develop nuclear weapons? I think it was, what, 2007 when there was this intelligence report from seven different American intelligence agencies and because this thing, this this kind of paranoia about uh, Iran trying to develop nukes has like come and gone many times over the years. And I remember it was 2007 or early 2008 that I think it was seven different U.S. intelligence agencies said that uh, they concluded that Iran did not have the capacity at that time to develop nuclear weapons, and it wasn't particularly close to being able to develop it either. And most likely, what Iran would do, from what I've read and what I understand, is not necessarily develop a nuclear weapon outright. They would they would vie for a plan known as nuclear latency which is that they would get right up to the point where they could develop a weapon and then they would stop so that they wouldn't be subject to international sanctions. Well, too late for that. They already are, even though they don't have them. And then if they ever perceived uh, any kind of credible threat, existential threat, then they would be at a place where they would be able to develop them very quickly. Right. So, so some people think that that's, that's actually what Iran has been gunning for, so to speak, 
is uh, nuclear latency, getting to a point in the refinement process where they would have the capacity to develop a nuclear weapon quickly, but without actually doing it so that they wouldn't have to deal with all the sanctions and uh, international legal issues. Keeping in mind that while this is going on, Israel is also talking constantly about about attacking Iran. Constantly. I mean, just Google it, you know, and uh, they do have nukes that are uninspected. So while all these demands are being placed on Iran to have international inspections and um, special scrutiny of what it's claiming is the development of atomic energy for peaceful purposes. I mean, we'll leave it to other people to do their own research and decide whether they think that claim is credible or not. Uh, Israel has uninspected nuclear weapons. Nobody's inspecting those things. It's the only country in the Middle East that does. So what's up with that? Imagine if you're on the Iranian side of that argument, wouldn't you think that there's kind of a double standard there? While this country that has nuclear weapons has the backing of the most powerful uh, empire uh, and military the world's ever seen? I mean, if they're looking at other countries like North Korea and Libya, and these countries do pay attention to what happens as far as regime change, a nuclear weapon means you can't be invaded. You know, there's some practical reasons to develop them for defensive purposes. It's insurance against invasion. And that's proven with what's happened to the, in, in the case of North Korea. The North Koreans, by the way, I mean, not to get too far outside of the Iran discussion, but they, they absolutely uh, were observing what happened in Libya after Qaddafi gave up his nuclear weapons program because he had one. And it was further developed than I think a lot of Westerners had thought until they actually went in and inspected it. They, the North Koreans saw that, OK, he gave up his nukes. What happened to him? Like, like hell, we're going to give up our nuclear weapons. I'm sure that the Iranians, who've been lumped in as part of the axis of evil along with North Korea, have, have taken note of that as well. But still, like they, they stayed with the, uh, with the Iran nuclear deal, which meant caps on how much uh, uh, enriched, what is it, enriched uranium they were able to create or the quality of that enrichment they were able to maintain for a year after the U.S. pulled out. So even though the U.S. reneged on a binding international treaty, the Iranian government kept their word and stuck with it for another year after the fact, most likely because the Europeans also stayed in the treaty, from what I understand. And it was a year to the day that they pulled out of it. I mean, they were making a very, and that was recently, just a couple months ago. So so that's kind of where they're at. And now they're in a place, from what I understand, and this is where like the... Oh, the, t- the technicalities get kind of confusing to me, but where they're in a place where their energy needs might well be at a place where they actually need nuclear energy because of all the sanctions that have been imposed against them and their limited capacity to be able to refine their own oil reserves, where they might actually need the ability to generate nuclear power, ironically enough, because of the sanctions. It's, <sighs> it's a big mess, man. But uh, that's the best I can do at trying to like hash it out for you unprepared and quickly. <laughs> no, no, you did a great job, man. I mean, any any kind of information that you have is is definitely a lot more than what I have because I'm just kind of like a a new mind to to all of this stuff. And you know, I think it's you know some people want to say, oh, well, you're woke. Well, no, I mean, it's just I'm paying attention now. Um, before you know, there's I wasn't paying attention to things, you know, involved in other stuff, and it, it's. When it's not really affecting you, you don't you don't look at it. 
but once it catches your attention or something catches your attention and when you realize that you're kind of being lied to or fed certain narratives and we're being, you know, through the media, however you want to see it, whether it's, you know, you look, you, you, you watch, uh, uh, MSNBC or any, any of these different networks, they all have their own spin on stuff and you, and you need to be nearly a, a an investigative journalist like yourself to figure out what the truth is if you're an average American person, because most of us are not going to go that extra step to try to figure out, you know, all right, well, I'm going to read seven different publications and I'm going to try to figure out and pull the truth out of each one of those. And kind of, you know, that's a lot of work. The average person is still plugged into the matrix. You know what I mean? It doesn't have time for that. Yeah, man. And I mean, there's a sense of, responsibility that i feel is having seen certain things and i've just seen certain things you know i can't tell you much about what's going on in east asia or in latin america but in the parts of the world where i've traveled and i'm not experts on those places even the places where i've been but i've been talking to people and trying to educate myself just through conversations at street level and then going back and verifying what i can by reading and listening to yeah same as you most likely like an investigative journalist who i think have credible um, perspectives and grounded analysis. So, I mean, as far as, as waking up, pulling yourself out of the matrix, like I had my moment where that happened for me. I, I would, I mean, I hesitant to say that like I'm awake now because I think that's an ongoing process. After September 11th, I had just graduated from college and I decided that uh, I wanted to understand better what was going on in that part of the world. Just like in general, I was angry and confused and I wanted to understand like the root of the, the anger. So I went, took out a bunch of college loans and enrolled in an Arabic program in Egypt and studied and traveled all over Egypt and all over Lebanon. Um, that was back in 2002. And I was, I was blown away by how my presuppositions were challenged so thoroughly and so regularly the people I was encountering on the street and on buses and just random places. And I mean, in English, cause my Arabic was crap then and it's not much better now. But, um, but I, I just found that, okay, I, I led with a bunch of frankly racist stereotypes, just assuming from whatever Hollywood culture I consumed and mainstream media that I'm dealing with people who probably aren't going to be terribly well-educated, they're all going to be poor and, and be very religious. And that's not what I encountered at all. I did encounter poverty. I also encountered like a lot of people with a very high level of education and a deep sense of frustration that they couldn't do anything with it because they were living in uh, under dictatorships and where merit had nothing to do with their life trajectory. And a lot of resentment toward the U.S., not American people, but the U.S. government because those dictators were backed by the U.S., in particular Mubarak, the time that I went there, the, the guy that was overthrown in the Arab Spring in Egypt. Yeah, he, he was there for 30 years. So, and absolutely like one of the chief beneficiaries of American foreign aid. After Israel, Egypt historically has been the second largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid money. And I think, safe to say, about 90% of that gets spent on their military. Ask yourself, why is that country spending 90% of its foreign aid money on its military? Have you heard of Egypt being in a war anytime recently? Like, why? Right? So who's it using that army against? <laughs> right? It's there to scare the shit out of its own people and to fund a massive intelligence apparatus. They have a peace treaty with Israel, which is their only neighbor that poses any kind of meaningful threat. 
and it's the largest country in the Middle East by population. So who's the, who's threatening them? Right? That 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 money that isn't getting spent on education or infrastructure. And I spent a good better part of three years of my life in Egypt. I've been all over that country and spent a lot of time in Cairo. I mean, I know what the infrastructure in that country looks like. It looks like it hasn't really had an upgrade since like the late 1950s, but they're getting billions of dollars from the U.S. and buying uh, attack helicopters that people just crash into the ground. So, uh, yeah, it's you start to see like you start to see that, first of all, that the people that you're interacting with, like, aren't just like mindless automatons controlled by like some religious text. That's just bullshit. Um, that there, that people's relationship to Islam runs a spectrum, just like it does in Christianity, and just like it does in other religions. And I've got, I've drank beers with plenty of Muslims, um, and I've met plenty who were very devout, prayed five times a day, and still hung out with me, and were curious to know why I was there. And uh, we had, I mean, I, I remember spending time, man, sitting in a mosque and just talking about religion with the Sharia scholar. And he was, I, I grew up very religious, so I knew the Bible pretty well. And, and he was just curious to challenge me and my understanding of the Christian texts. And I wanted to know more about like uh, why he was uh, so concerned with his own faith. So, I mean, there's, there's ample opportunities for pursuing your curiosity if you put yourself in these situations. And I think that that's what more people need to do. And it's not that you need to, travel to the far side of the world to do it like that's if there's anything that people take away from this conversation today man what i mean as far as waking up you don't necessarily need to buy a plane ticket and fly to egypt or to uh some far off land like find an islamic center in your community find a place where like refugee populations or migrants congregate and interact with them you know like if there's some sort of like cultural event volunteer. If you find that there's a mosque in your community, go by and just talk to the people who work there. It doesn't necessarily need to be the imam, just community members. And just say, look, you're curious. You don't know anything about the religion. You're not necessarily interested in converting if that's, if that's what you want to tell them, but like, but you're confused by some of the things that you've heard and you've got some questions and maybe even some difficult questions. I think people will be surprised at how warmly they're received. Like it's American Muslims in America aren't like oblivious to the fact that they're portrayed, portrayed and perceived in a negative way. Like they're consuming the same stuff we are, man. And, and they're, <laughs> they've got plenty of reason to be scared and concerned more than the average, like armed militia member does. So I think what you'll find is that you'll be received very warmly just in part because that's just part of the culture um, at least in the Middle East, everywhere I've been, I've been treated like, very warmly and welcomed into people's homes whom I've barely known over and over again and treated like a family member. And it's also part of the faith and it's very community oriented. So, and I'm saying this as, a, as an atheist, man, like I'm not trying to convert anybody, <laughs> like, but they go seek out the different and come with questions and respect. You know, it doesn't need to be that you, that you're coming there like, loaded up and trying to make people wrong, accept the fact that you're not an expert on their culture as much as they are and ask the difficult questions, but be sure to, to lead with curiosity, you know, 
And don't expect people to answer for their entire faith. That's the other thing that I see happening a lot in the media is that the entire religion or an entire community goes on trial every time one or two people decide to do something stupid. If you haven't noticed, it seems like every Muslim who commits a terrorist attack is, is without fail, completely sane. Right? The crazies are always the, the, the white people and the Christian extremists. Those are the ones who are deranged loners. But somehow, you ever notice terrorists are never characterized as being insane? Yeah. Like if they're, if they're Muslim? Why is yeah, that? Yeah. Why wouldn't they be crazy too? Why isn't mental illness a plausible explanation for their behavior too? Given the fact that it's a small, minuscule minority of people in that community that are committing those crimes, why, why can't it be at least in part attributed to uh, insanity? You know, um, and I'm not saying that that's the case in, in every case, but it's just curious to me that it seems like it's never even countenanced or put on the table. So look for opportunities to interact with the different and to understand like uh, um, other people's worldviews. And it doesn't necessarily mean that all your questions need to be answered um, or that you're going to agree 100 percent. But if, if agreeing 100% is a prerequisite for respecting other people or, or, or not fearing them, then we're all in trouble, man. Like, who can you trust? <laughs> so it, the, the issue is, is getting to a place where you recognize that the differences that exist between us don't require violence is the, is the go-to response. That there are other ways to deal with our fears and the place to start for me like my my big thing man with my show that i try to promote is my 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 view about most of the suffering that's taking place in the world at this particular moment maybe arguably throughout human history is that it's largely a product of a failure of curiosity and that might sound kind of weird or trite but i want to make it clear i'm not saying that the people are starving uh, because they're not curious, or the people are oppressed by dictators because they're not curious. What I'm saying is that the people might be in those circumstances because we have failed to be curious about their conditions. People who are year in and year out, decade after decade, living under tyrannical regimes, or who are always on the edge of famine, um, or always struggling to maintain their basic needs, there comes a point where we in the West need to ask, why don't things ever change? And instead of just writing them off with, well, I guess they just don't want democracy, or I guess that they're just inept and stupid as a group of people, ask the next question. Well, have they done the reasonable thing? Have they actually sought, like, appeal to the international community to help them uh, improve their circumstances? You know, have they, ever rose, have they ever tried to rise up against their government and improve their political fortunes? And very often you'll see that they have, many times. And when those efforts are crushed, very frequently, it's by dictators who are backed by us and by our money. So on the one hand, we're demanding that these people like demonstrate political maturity and sophistication and that they rise up uh, to liberate themselves. while at the same time, arming the very people who are oppressing them. It's total bullshit. That's the thing that maybe frustrates me more than anything else in, in some of the places that I've traveled in the Middle East is these disingenuous calls by talking heads in the Western media and uh, in, in politics who are saying that like these people just need to rise up and, and create democracies in their countries and we'll be there to support them. 
not only have we proven time and again we will not be there to support them, we've proven time and again that we will be there to arm the people who will put them down. It's happening all over the place right now. I can make a list for you, man. You know, it's happening in Saudi Arabia. It's happening in Yemen. It's happening in Egypt, in Sudan right now, a place that I don't even know how many people in your audience are aware of the fact that they just had a revolution in Sudan and it's not done yet. The Arab Spring is still going on, man. And in December, a revolution started taking place in Sudan. They overthrew a 30-year military dictatorship. 30-year dictatorship, man. Same story as what happened in Egypt in 2011. And the country is now ruled by a transitional military council, which is exactly what happened in Egypt after their Arab Spring. And two things are occurring at the same time. One, other countries in the region are terrified that this might actually be successful because the Arab Spring largely failed. And those countries don't want to see it succeed someplace else because it might inspire their people to rise up again. So Egypt doesn't want this to succeed when it looks like the exact same thing is taking place in Sudan as took place in Egypt between 2011 and 2013. Saudi Arabia and the Emirates don't want it to succeed because it might give their populations ideas and they're unelected. <laughs> and some of them, in, in the case of Saudi Arabia, one of the most brutal and backwards regimes on the planet and one of the, if not, well, yeah, most likely the world's largest exporter of terrorism. Um, so they don't want it to succeed. So they're dumping money uh, into the Saudis and the Emiratis are dumping money into the military regime to support them. And at the same time that that's going on, uh, have you heard of the uh, the genocide in Darfur? Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I heard a little bit about that probably. What was that like yeah. maybe 10 years ago or in between? Years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still, I mean, to some degree taking place. But I mean, 2005, I think, is when things really escalated. There was a, a militia that was like the tip of the spear, supported by the government, that were like the, the henchmen, basically the people who were committing the killings in Darfur, and they were known as the Janjaweed. The Janjaweed later became incorporated into the armed forces of Sudan and were rebranded. That's it. They were just given a different name, and they were given the legitimacy of belonging to the military in some capacity. And now they're known as the RSF, or the Rapid Support Forces. And the RSF are in charge of the refugee detention centers in Sudan, which you never hear about because you only hear about refugees when they're on boats on the way to Europe. You don't hear about all of the different places along the way in Africa where people get stopped and stuck because nobody cares about what's happening in sub-Saharan Africa or in Saharan Africa, to be honest. It's when it's it's two seconds after the boat leaves shore that, that the media starts to take an interest because they might come to a white country. But they've been warehoused in Sudan for years. And the, the element of the military that is in charge of administering those detention facilities is the RSF, which was the Janjaweed, which were the henchmen of a genocide in Sudan. So the people who are in charge of overseeing the European policy of uh, deterrence so that people won't try to come to Europe as refugees, are funded by the European Union and are known genociders. That's, the, that's Western complicity right now in um, what's going on in Sudan. And then you have the Saudis, who are some of the closest Western allies in the Middle East, certainly American allies in the Middle East, uh, funding uh, the military transitional, and I say that in quotes, regime in Sudan. 
So it's like teetering, man, on a nice edge, what could happen in that country. And there's a lot of bad actors who don't want to see it succeed because if it does, it provides a model for the rest of the Middle East. And the West, again, has an opportunity to witness a popular revolution that's taking place in that country where people are asking for some of the same basic rights that you and I take for granted every day living in Western countries. They're getting shot in the streets for those just for asking for those rights by regimes that are unquestionably by any metric of justice in the international community, horrible regimes, genocidal regimes. And we're on the wrong side of history again. These things can change if people inform themselves and if they place demands on their government because we've demonstrated that they can. You know, I mean, it's been a huge struggle to try and get any kind of policy change with regards to the U.S. arming the Saudis in their bombing of Yemen. But it did finally reach a point where people on both sides in the House were pushing for it, where they wanted to, where they told the president, look, you do not have the authorization of Congress to wage war. There was a significant push. This is a government that is accountable to the civilians at the end of the day. If people actually take an interest and stop being apathetic and recognize that like their voice actually does matter um, and con- when it's used in concert with other people, we can make a difference. You know, like all of that money that gets dumped into election campaigns by corporations and all that stuff that frustrates me to no end. It can't at the end of the day compete with a vote. Yeah, no, still got to get reelected. Yeah, that's that's still got to get true. reelected, man. Enough people make it clear that they're not going to if they support these regimes. They have to listen. Yeah, it's just. So I mean, that's my. I don't know. That's that's the sermon, man. Sorry. No, 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 man. I, I, dude, I appreciate everything that you're saying, and and you know, enlightening me in in this, which I'm not, you know, very. I just I need to make more of an effort to follow the follow the lines and do a little bit more uh, research myself into some of these things that I'm interested in, but you know, coming from somebody who's been to those areas. Um, let me just ask you a couple questions about, about that. Uh, sure. were you ever scared? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I haven't been, I mean, that's, that's kind of a tricky question to answer because you can be scared of a real threat and you can be scared of a perceived threat. Right. Like when I first got off the plane in 2002 going to Cairo, I thought I was just going to walk into like, if not an active war zone, definitely a place where like danger was like lurking behind every corner because it was the big scary Middle East. And as a younger guy, to be honest, that was part of the appeal. Like I wanted an adventure. I was kind of going for um, some bullshit reasons. (laughs) You know, there was curiosity was a part of it, but I was also just attracted to the allure of like what I perceived to be kind of dangerous and exotic. So that was a part of it. But I mean, I quickly realized that that was just in my imagination and that it was just me, understandably, uh, buying into the narrative that had been sold to me in the media. I mean, I've lived in the West Bank in Palestine for five months as a graduate student and traveled all over there in Israel and later went to Gaza, um, went to Syria about a year after the war started there, saw some of the the aftermath of some, some nasty battles. I didn't go into the middle of any of them. I'll say this. For the most part, what I recognize is that courage hasn't been required much of me in, in most of my travels. And I think that there are there are people that 
for the sake of their own egos who live and work in that part of the world, whether they're journalists or working in other areas, will feed into the notion that it's dangerous because it makes them look brave. But I've rarely had to be brave, you know? I mean, maybe the bravest thing that I've ever done is overcoming my fear enough to get on a plane and actually go, you know, not knowing what to expect. But once I reached a place of understanding that, like, most people are just going about their lives and trying to survive and are pretty sweet and welcoming in ways that, like, most American communities I've lived in aren't, then you realize that this is, that's just, that's just a part of the story about these places. It's not the reality. I never had to look over my shoulder, man, walking around in Palestine. And that's a place that doesn't even have a functioning justice system. You know, like you, I could, I used to be able to just like leave my laptop outside of like a cafe in, in Beirut and in the West Bank, I could go walk around the corner and come back and like nobody's going to touch it. It took me some getting used to, to accept the fact that it was that safe. Actually, it was shocking to me because I couldn't do that in any American city I've ever lived in. Like that would be gone in like a hot second in any big American city. Um, not so much in, in, in uh, many places I've been in the Middle East. I'm not saying that you should necessarily try that in Cairo, but, but that was my experience <laughs> in Palestine and, to Le- and in Lebanon to some extent. And it's also, I don't want to overstate it and, and just say that there aren't any problems in these countries. There, there is. I mean, Cairo has pretty awful track record when it comes to sexual assault and harassment towards women. But as far as feeling unsafe, like because of political like uh, animosity toward me as an American? No. Like, I can't think of a time when that's happened. In like years of living in the Middle East, where people just wanted to come after me because they heard that I was an American. So of, of let's say, all right, so since the the Internet, since obviously you were there in, in times before the Internet got big in, in different areas of the world, do you feel like, because I feel like the, the world is getting really small, with the, with the internet, how we can talk mm-hmm. to somebody in, you know, uh, across the world off, on the internet, through Skype, through here, through chat rooms, through Facebook groups, whatever it is. Do you think that's going to help change the world for the better? I mean, well, two things. First, there's one thing I wanted to add to my last comment about fear. The scariest place I've ever been in my life was walking distance from a major American city. Yeah, that was Juarez, Mexico in uh, 2000 between 2009 and 2011 when I was going down there I mean if you if you want to go to a really scary war zone type place you don't need to go to the Middle East I've never been that scared in my life and it was a particularly nasty time I don't know what what is is like these days but but then it was like they were hanging decapitated bodies from the bridge that separates the two countries like the separate waters from from El Paso, there were car bombings, like random shootings, well, not random, planned shootings and assassinations. So that's just to kind of put things in context. Like one of the few times I've been genuinely really afraid for my safety was was a place I could walk to from the U.S. And uh, as far as is the Internet going to make the world a better place, I'll say this, like any time, any that that I'm aware of, you know, maybe in the last like, well, couple hundred years or maybe longer revolutions tend to take advantage of whatever the emerging technology is. 
so do oppressive regimes. You know, they're they're usually one step behind them, figuring out ways to spread misinformation or to monitor people. Um, and you're definitely seeing that with the internet. But you saw like Twitter and Facebook being used as organizing tools during the the Arab Spring, 2011, and uh, years after. And it's still being used to organize people. And it's kind of amazing, too, because you think that the government would just shut down the Internet then. But but there's disincentives for them to do that, too, because that instantly gets the attention of the international community when you do that. If if the government shuts down Twitter and Facebook, reporters start to report on that because that's usually a bad sign that something really bad is about to happen. Right. (laughs) If nothing else, it raises instant questions about whether you're the good guys is the regime. You know, you don't really see progressive Western governments or progressive governments anywhere shutting down the Internet on the people. So it puts you in like kind of the bad guy category. So there's pressures to keep the Internet on to not flip the switch, although that doesn't work everywhere. There's plenty of places where it does happen. You know, Turkey does that every once in a while. I think Sri Lanka did that after terrorist attacks. And then there's the question of, well, are we being monitored anyway? Like it's, if it's on, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not being used against us. So, so those are all valid questions. But we have increasingly, I mean, more and more people have access to these tools that can allow them to communicate with anybody, even without having to worry about language barriers anywhere on earth at the push of a button. And to use them locally as organizing tools for, to achieve their political ends. And they can, and those things in some ways are ideologically and morally neutral. You know, they can be used by terrorist organizations and by oppressive governments. At the same time, they can be used by people who are trying to liberate themselves from oppression. But the point is that they have access. Um, in some ways, like the, the spread of information has been democratized, and that has political implications that can benefit people whose voices aren't being heard, who need to organize themselves locally. So I don't, I mean, is it going to make the world a better place? I, I can't, I can't predict that, but, but I see some promise in some of the tools that we have available to us. How do you feel about podcasting as a, as a platform to get information out to the public? I think it's freaking awesome, man. I'm doing it because I have my frustrations with the, not just the information that's being made available, but like what stories are being prioritized that's that's what that's what inspired mine. I mean, my podcast, and I'll just plug it really quick if that's cool, is is called Latitude Adjustment, and that's at latitudeadjustmentpod.com, and it focuses on uh, underreported voices, places, and communities. So voices can mean issues as well. And the idea for me, I always wanted to do some sort of media project that highlighted places that we tend to forget exist on the map. You know, or communities that are neglected or that are that suffer from like uh, stereotypes in the media and that are not really described in um, that are described in reductionist terms. You know, like like there's if you hear about Iraq, you think of only three things, right? Like uh, the the invasion and maybe the current state of disrepair and terrorism, but not anything about well, what what is life like for the average Iraqi? right now maybe we should actually talk to somebody there and not just after there's a car bombing like just just to talk to them why not you know i I wonder what it would be like to just wake up and be iraqi 
and, and like go about your day and like and, and and see how it is that they navigate the reality. And so I think that there's something that can be beautiful and fascinating and revealing and also disarming to our prejudice and just accessing the stories of regular people in places where we've been trained, you know, by our political culture and the dominant media culture to have suspicions and prejudices. I think it can be really disarming just to connect with people's humanity, even if what they're talking about is fairly mundane. Although I try to find people with captivating stories. So my view is, yeah, it's with basically no budget, you can take people on a tour of the world through conversations. And that's what I'm trying to do. And it's not just that I think that I need to educate people. I'm on that journey too, man. You know, like this is an opportunity for me to get back on a plane again, like I did in 2002, going to Egypt and do it every week, like, but uh, through the internet. And I can go to a different place and, and maybe I'll even make a friend in those places and like I can go visit someday. That would be like the dream to take this thing on the road. That would be so cool. If nothing else, like I can use my little corner of the Internet to boost the signal of somebody else's life story or their struggle and focus on issues and places that I care about. A lot of the people that I connect with come from places where I've either been or I have some sort of like a personal interest or emotional investment. So it's, it's, it's my way to address that need too. You know, I want these stories to be heard. In some cases I develop, you know, uh, friendships or relationships with these people or their work uh, after the fact. So I think that it's, uh, there's a lot of noise out there because the barrier to entry is, is so low. Anybody, just about anybody can do this. So that creates challenges. And so I'm just working as hard as I can to ground what I say and, uh, and the people that I bring on the show, the perspectives that I represent. I, I try to apply a high level of journalistic integrity to what I do, even if I don't consider myself to be a journalist, at least in the traditional sense. Like I try to apply those principles. You know, I need to verify the things that, that I'm saying. Um, just because somebody says something that maybe uh, attacks somebody that I don't like or an institution or a government that I don't like, that doesn't necessarily mean it belongs in a show or that it's credible or that it shouldn't be contextualized and questioned. Um, I need to ask difficult questions to people whose opinions I agree with, not just people who I disagree with. Um, I need to have my own points of view and perspectives challenged. Otherwise, what's the point of doing this? If I'm just leading in thinking I've already got all the answers and I'm only going to and I'm only going to speak to people who will reinforce my beliefs. How is that being woke? You know, that's not how you got woke up in the first place. You know, at some point, if you consider yourself to be a woke person, like you are receptive to criticism and the fact that you might be wrong. So if you, if you want to continue down that path, the way to go is not to decide, OK, I've arrived now. My eyes are open. I'm done. And now I just need to educate everybody else. No, it's an ongoing process. We've all got tons and tons of blind spots that we can't see. So we need to first and foremost, like be in a place always as an interviewer, as a host of a show. If what you're trying to do is educate the public to demonstrate that you're willing to be educated yourself. And if you're not having that happen regularly, that's probably a warning sign to you. If you feel that you've arrived at a place where you're just pretty much viewing the answers, that's probably a bad sign because there's no way at least given the breadth of topics that I'm covering, that I could be an expert on all these subjects. There's just no freaking way, man. So if I'm not being challenged or corrected or learning something 
just about every show that I do, then I'm probably, that's probably a clear sign of doing something wrong. Stay curious and, and encourage others to do the same. And the best way to encourage them to do the same is to stay that way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And willingness to be educated. Yeah, I agree with you. And, yeah. and you educated me just a little bit too, because, you know, you, you pointed out, well, you didn't point out in general, but it was just pointed out, you know, just from, you know, you're like, ask a question. And I'm like, well, shit, you're right. I'm not asking questions. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just like sort of going around w- with no, with no purpose. So, I mean, even though I prepared a little bit, it just showed me that, dude, you, if you're going to talk to people who are educated and know things, you should probably attack it with, with more, more questions and be more prepared. So thank you. That, I mean, I've that, learned that too, man. And I've learned it. I've learned it's and it's I've learned it the hard way and I'm still refining that like I'm I'm an amateur man I'm not you know I've got my tiny little audience like but I've just learned from I picked up little tricks along the way or I've learned things along the way 99% of it from just making mistakes and and finding myself in awkward situations but some of this stuff isn't even it, it precedes doing anything related to a podcast like I was a social worker for years man and I had to go into people's homes and earn their trust very quickly in situations where maybe they felt like they were getting screwed over by the agency that I was working for or by the state or just by life. And they were mistrustful or they had mental health issues and they just like genuinely like uh, like I didn't trust the reality that other people were trying to convince them uh, they should buy into. So that informed that informs my approach to what I'm doing to some degree, too, in, in ways that I never thought it would. And that also helped me when I was running around the West Bank in Israel doing interviews with people and recognizing the, the value of empathy and, and relating to people who are willing to bring you into their homes and answer your, your questions, especially if they're challenging questions, that uh, it's important to, to in some ways, like be impartial and have some detachment, you know, so that you can try and act, ask a question somewhat objectively, you know. You don't want to be, show too much emotion, um, depending on what your agenda is with your show. I mean, mine is to try and get at the truth and to, to expose what people really think and believe. But, but some level of empathy is helpful in winning people's trust. Uh, so I learned a lot also in those instances because I was interviewing people who didn't speak English or didn't speak it very well. So I have to use a translator. And that meant, wow, I've really got to be prepared. Like my questions need to be super solid and very concise like one short sentence because otherwise all of this is going to get lost in translation and somebody's going to get frustrated, you know? Yeah. So I tried, I, I learned from that process. Most of like the media stuff that I've done is, is required translators participation. So I learned to keep things really simple and that informed to some degree, like how I prepare for my podcast. You know, I, I asked people to share with me, what are the things that they care about? Send me news articles, send me the things that you're interested in so that I can get an idea of like how your mind works. And then from there, I try and form a list of questions and refine them, you know, cut some out, like which ones are the essential ones. And based on my time limitations, figure out, okay, I've got an hour realistically based on my experience. How many of these could I fit into, into one, um, to a one hour session. And it's just, it's an art, man. You know, being, being a good interviewer is, is really an art. And I'm, I'm still at the beginning stages. Yeah, me too. And I, I just realized like even when you were talking about that, I was like, God, 
that whole uh, U.S.-Mexico border thing that I wanted to address, that's a whole nother show in itself, pretty much. Dude, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'd be happy to talk to you anytime about that. But um, sorry, I just really, as soon as we went into the Iran thing, I'm like, yep, this is going to, this is going to take some explaining about whether or not like some people planted a bomb on a boat. Like it's, there's a whole backstory to that. Yeah. I mean, and basically, you know, with, with my show, it's, it's, I, I, I tell stories or let people tell their stories of their bottoms and their life struggles that they've gone through and how they got through it. But in between that, I get into more things that I'm interested in because I feel like a show that has all of these, you know, negative things could be a little bit depressing to hear week after week after week. So I, you know, tap into other things that interest me. And this is, this is one of them because people need to know about it. People need to know about what they're not, what, what they don't know about. A general, a good general guiding principle is like when you think you've arrived at the truth, ask like two or three more questions. You know, like when you think you've satisfied what you need to satisfy in order to be comfortable in your opinion, ask a couple more questions. Because most of the, the, I don't know, the truths that I've encountered are, aren't so simple. Like they don't have clear black and white answers when it comes to the Middle East or to, I don't know, more abstract philosophical questions. But for the sake of like our, our sense of security and also just selfishness, like I think that like we don't want to spend our time feeling guilty about the plight of other people or responsible or obligated to do something. So coming up with explanations or accepting explanations that allow us to stop caring, that's very seductive. Like if you can just hear an explanation that tells you, oh, well, these people are just backward, or these people hate us anyway, or these people are the authors of their own misery, so I don't really need to care so much about them anymore. I guess that's their problem. Yeah, that's that's seductive. That's It's tempting to buy into that, because then you can just go back to, well, living your life of uh, mindless consumption or doing whatever it is that you do, not caring. <laughs> And to be fair, I mean, a lot of us are struggling just to survive, too. That's That needs to be acknowledged. And so curiosity, to some degree, is also, I mean, it's fair to say that it's a, it's a luxury, too. But, I mean, what kind of life do you want to live? You know, like, wh- wh- how big do you want your world to be? As one of my professors once said, your, your world can be as small as, like, your little community in your neighborhood or your small circle of friends. Or it can be, you know, the, 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 the full scope of humanity that are impacted by your decisions as a voter. And as an American, that means a shitload of people. I don't know if I can swear on your show. Sorry. No, that no, means you're a fine. lot of people. So that means a lot of people. Like an American vote man carries a lot of weight, <laughs> a lot more weight than, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to pick on a country, a tiny country somewhere. But like our, if you're an American voter, the implications of your vote like they resound around the world and impact the political fortunes and economic well-being of billions of people. So there is a real responsibility with that because our tax dollars get used to drop bombs on people all over the place or to provide aid to people all over the place or to support their, the regimes that are oppressing them. So if you, if you want to stop caring about the rest of the world and take an interest in making sure that your country isn't up to no good all over the place in your name. Because that's what's being done. Whether we're whether we we are aware of it or not, whether we care or not, our our country is acting in our name. If 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 we really believe in the the notion that it's like a government of foreign by the people, this government is acting in our name with our tax dollars. 
Yeah, I have take an interest in how our image is being projected abroad, or you can not. That's that's your that's that's your option. But if you opt out, I mean, you to some degree are abdicating your responsibility as a beneficiary of empire. Standard of living is built on extracting resources and keeping other people down. And if you say that you don't need to take an interest in the effect that that has on other people or the anger that they might visit on us at some point, um, well, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. It's putting your head in the sand. Someone else at some point in some generation is going to pay that price. Dude, you just blew my mind with that because I never even thought about that in that in in that way. I mean, I've always thought about like uh, you know how 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 our our money's being spent. If I just you know with the amount of money I paid in taxes this last year, you know, I was like just astounded and like, well, geez, where's all of our money going? And then you know, it just goes into something else. But yeah, I never even thought about it that way, and I'm going to start looking at it that way a little bit more. Yeah, man. 20, 20 cents out of every tax dollar you're spending is going to the defense industry. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well, dude, this was a great conversation and a good interview. You gave me a lot to chew on cool, um, and a lot of things to think about and probably my listeners too. Uh, I don't, they, a lot of them, I don't know if they are aware of any of this stuff or not. Do you want to plug any of your social media or anything else before we uh, Sure, man. I would just... Uh, sure. First, I just want to say I'm honored. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. And for letting me just kind of go off, man. I mean, there's, that's kind of like has its own therapeutic value. So thank you. And uh, yeah, as far as my social media stuff. So yeah, the the, the podcast is latitudeadjustmentpod.com. And the podcast is Latitude Adjustment. You can find that wherever people find podcasts. Um, and then if you go to the website, you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook. And uh, then my nonprofit is uh, openroadsmedia.org, and we make these little documentary films in different countries that have political conflicts with other countries. Well, that's great. And dude, anytime you want to come on and ramble on and do free form on any topic whatsoever, let me know and I'll let, I'll give you the platform to do that because you're educating me as well as other people. And and that's that's what this is all about. Awesome, man. Cool. I mean, I genuinely mean it. I'm, I'm flattered that you asked, and thanks for the opportunity to do it again. And, and hit me up, man. Let me know how this goes, uh, and send me a link when you're done. I'd like to check it out and share it around. Yeah, and, for, uh, for sure. Keep at it, man. I mean, I'm, I'm learning by doing it. I'm assuming that's how you're learning too, man. We just got to keep doing this week in and week out and like try and keep ourselves to a deadline and try and improve with every episode and seek out guidance from other people who are further along than us. That's, that's what I'm trying to do. Exactly. And this is a, a, a marathon. When you start a podcast, it is not a sprint. It doesn't happen quickly. And (laughs) you know, you just, it's a grind for sure. Yeah, man. All right, Eric. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Sean. All right. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the show and thank you to Eric. Man, good uh, interview, Eric. I really appreciated uh, your patience with me and I also appreciated your passion, man, and uh, how you tell your stories and how you weave a story together and and present it. It's, uh, yeah, man, it's, you're, you're an inspiration, man. I, I wish that I had half the courage that you had. 
you know, and doing some of these things and, and, you know, some of the places that you've been, it's super admirable, man. So yeah, if you, uh, enjoyed this show as much as I enjoyed, uh, recording it, why don't you head over to Eric's podcast, which is called Latitude Adjustment, and you can find that on most major podcast platforms that you listen or that you get your podcasts from. Uh, I imagine iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all the all the major ones. Uh, he has a nonprofit which is called Open Roads Media, and he also has the Virtual Dinner Guest Project, which I listened to one of those the other day. And it was pretty interesting the way that the way that uh, they do that. So check those out as well. And there'll be links to this in the show notes where you can just go down, scroll down, and, and click, and it'll take you right there. God, so many things to do when you're first learning how to do these things. You know, you start you just have notice all the, the little places where you're not being efficient and all right, well put that on the list of things I got to figure out and fix. So yeah, this is, uh, the first of the biweekly change where I'm publishing every two weeks now instead of every week because that schedule was pretty demanding and I was having a hard time keeping up with it. If you want to reach out to me, the best place to do that, like I've said before, is at nowhere to go but up now on Instagram. Go to my bio, go down to the link tree, and you can hit me up through there because everywhere that I'm at is on that link tree. If you want to be a guest on the show, uh, you can go there as well. You can hit the uh, uh, book tab, like book a, a interview tab, and my availability should pop up there. And you just you know pick a time that you want to interview, answer some some questions from the questionnaire, and it'll shoot it right back to me. You know so. If You've got something that you want to say. You got a bottom in your life that you want to talk about, and you think that would help other people to hear. Come on over, man. I want to hear from you. You know, if you got some suggestions for a show, uh, you know, if you got some feedback, whatever it is you want to do, I mean, you can email me as well. That's nowhere to go but up now at gmail.com. I want to hear from you. You know, feedback's always good. It, uh, you know, it lets the hosts know and, uh, people involved with the show, you know, what the show's doing, how it's growing. If it's, you know, for reaching the demographic that we're, we're shooting for. And if we're helping people, which is the whole purpose of this is to help people by bringing stories of other people. I don't think there's very much more uh, other than I should be able to have a little bit more time now since most of my union stuff is on hold. Well, not on hold, but uh, I'm not really doing anything much with that until October when the nominations and I'll be nominated for the uh, business agent position. And then that whole month will be kind of me campaigning 
for this position. So I'm feeling pretty good about it. Most of the people that I've talked to so far are very supportive and will be supporting me. And that's cool. But, you know, talk's cheap. Polls can change, you know, as we can see in our in our own presidential election in, in 2016, you know, how everybody was kind of bamboozled and they thought one thing and, well, lo and behold, that didn't work out. So when it comes to October, November, put good thoughts in your head for me, man. I'm going to need all the positive thinking I can get. Till then, keep it 100, stay true to yourself, everything else is just noise. (laughs) 